I think there were so many different dynamics at play, and I think for, for me it was never feeling quite sure about the world being a safe place. It felt very dangerous. In fact, I was self-harming at the age of four as well. So I can look back now and I think, whoa, that was really self-harming behavior, which of course one doesn't identify at the, at the time. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm so excited today. We've got Andrea Woodside. We've been talking for ages trying to set this up, so I'm so glad that we finally locked it in. Uh, welcome to the show. Let us know a little bit about you. What do you do? Thanks. Great to meet you, Petra. Um, my name is Andrea Woodside, and uh, I came over from Canada uh, about 26 years ago now. So really? I spent my, yeah, it's a long time. I came over for six months and ended up sort of, you know, 25 and a half years later, I'm still here. Yeah. Um, and I started my career in workplace well-being back in the, back in the day, and to this day I continue uh, to work in that, in that space. And think times have changed, haven't they? As yeah. far as workplace well-being and the conversation, what do, you, what do you see has changed as far as workplaces prioritizing this conversation? Well, I think, you know, 20, 26 years ago, you'd walk in and they'd look at you like you were Satan and trying to find the 666 on the, on, on, in, in your hair. Um, they didn't want to talk to you about, about workplace well-being because, of course, that would mean that they had a problem. I'd say in the last five years, we've really, I've personally seen a real difference. And, and now what we're also starting to talk about, and I'd say in the last couple of years, is around suicide prevention, self-harm prevention in the workplace. So we've, we've literally gone from zero to 60. It's taken a long time, but in the scheme of things, I think it's, it's been incredible. But you've stuck with it. That's a long old time through being seen as Satan to, to consistently <laughs> show up with the belief that maybe the conversation would change. Yeah, I'm, I'm really stubborn. I'm super stubborn. So I'm, I'm a dog with a bone. I just have not given up. And uh, I will spend, I, I'm so privileged to be working in this field. Um, and I think once you're in, you, it, it's kind of like you don't get out. Yeah, you yeah. want to see it to the end. All right, I'm going to have to call you up in about 23 years because I've been in it for about two. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll let you know if I'm just stuck. Um, so Andrea, let, obviously, the theme of this podcast is around adversity, right? And it's around the challenges that we face in our life. Because I find that most people, I'd say 99.99% of people who are in the well-being space, whatever that looks like, have yeah. some kind of personal story that's driven them or connected them into this topic that sort of yeah. drives us to want to create change. Do, does that apply to you? Do you think your work is, is meaningful because of personal connection? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I think very much like I found my way into workplace well-being really randomly. It's a long and rather dull story, but it was one of those serendipitous things where I literally came here without a job. And next thing I know, I'm working in workplace well-being. And I had no idea what it meant. But what it did was resonate with me because I think um, my own experiences, and, and again, I'm, I, I really do believe, Petra, there's no hierarchy of pain. 
I, I really firmly believe what, that. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean, I think one can go through anything and it's all relative. Mm-hmm. And, and so what, what I really wanted to, to help to change that really sparked something in me was to help people to tell their stories because every story is important. And, and in the workplace, we all have our stories, right? And it was really for me sort of saying, okay, look, I, I'm in a lot of pain. Things haven't been easy, but I'm in no more pain than anybody else. So if I can get out there and, and sort of encourage employers to recognize their people as human beings with their story, with their dreams, their passions, their insecurities, et cetera, then I think that that was how I really felt that we needed to start um, encouraging. And, and I, I wouldn't want to work in any other place because it is such a privilege for me to hear people's stories. Um, and I've been lucky enough for people to want to listen to mine. Yeah, yeah. I love that so much. So give us a bit of context just about what was early life like? I just, I love to know um, if, if kids, I guess, if we looking back, think yeah. that we, our parents and our, the education system sort of built our resilience in the way that it needed to be built for yeah. our adult life. Do you feel like you, you got that start in life? Um, I don't, actually. Um, like so many other people, I think we can, we can look back on our lives and recognize as adults the kind of trauma um, that was at, at play. And again, I, I, I'm not saying that there's a hierarchy of, of, of trauma. I think it's so about what affects um, individuals. I, I was a very sensitive child. Um, I was very unsure of myself. And, and I always found this world a really kind of weird place. I remember as a really small kid thinking, God, this is just the weirdest place. Yeah. You know, not really understanding how this came about, how I ended up on this, on this planet. Um, my, my first suicide attempt was at the age of seven. And I think for me, recognizing that there was an out at that age was, was a revelation. I mean, in fact, I still remember being told by somebody that if I did X, it could be fatal. And I, and I was, I was so intrigued by this. I just thought, wow, this is absolutely extraordinary. It was like suddenly as a seven-year-old, I'm thinking, my God, there's a way out of here. And it was absolutely um, something that I think really kept me going as well. So knowing that I could die at my choosing really helped me to cope with what was going on in the, in the present. So it's like you had some kind of control. Yeah. In a world that perhaps you didn't have control. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so, yeah. what, I mean, seven is so young. I mean, we talk about um, sort of more and more adolescents sort of taking their lives and um, sort of being pushed to the edge in, in that sense. But the seven, you're really just a child, right? Um, yeah. So or do you mind, just give us a little bit of context, what was going on for you that would have led you to that sort of way out or that feel, feeling hopeful about that way out? Um, I think there were so many different dynamics at play. And I think for, for me, it was never feeling quite sure about the world being a safe place. It felt very dangerous. In fact, I was self-harming at the age of four as well. So I can look back now and I think, whoa, that was really self-harming behavior, which of course one doesn't identify at the, at the time. Um, the relationship that I had with certain family members was, was very difficult. Um, I felt very much to blame 
for some of the toxic dynamics in the family. Um, and there was a lot of just having to feel that somehow I could fix everybody. And so when you're four and you're kind of hoping to fix everybody, it, it, it's, it's a really slippery slope. That's a lot of pressure as well. And that, that yeah. message obviously came from somewhere, either through yeah. shaming or this, this feeling that you should be able to be different or do things different. Yeah, I, th I think you're absolutely right. I think there was a lot of that shaming. Um, I'm not pinning this on one particular person, um, but I think also the school, because you, you mentioned school earlier, and I think that was an important thing, that because I was so distressed, I think I was treated as though there was something kind of pathologically wrong with me. Now, I'm, I'm about to turn 50, and so, of course, we look back 43 years ago was my first suicide attempt. I mean, that's that's quite some time ago when we start to think about much like employers have shifted the discourse. I think schools, thank God now are shifting the discourse. But back in those days, you were, it, it was very much a punitive um, response. There is something wrong with this child instead of saying there is something wrong for this child. Yeah, and there's yeah. a really, really big, big, big difference between the two. Um, by the time I was eight, obviously very vulnerable, um, pretty much suicidal all the time. And so uh, when, when, when uh, I'm just curious, if you're attempting or in this place, at any point, did a teacher, a parent, a, a, a role model, a, a sibling, I don't know, kind of notice at this point how desperate the situation was and perhaps begin to put something in place? Or did, it just, did you just consistently feel like the problem child that needed to be fixed? It was very much I was the problem child that needed to be to be fixed. And, and you know, the, the reality is, is when you're penalized, punished, shamed for being so-called out of control, then, of course, you start to think, well, that's who I am. So that becomes your right. narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It totally becomes your narrative because you don't want to let anybody down. If you start behaving well, well, then you'll probably be rejected. You want to give people you know, leave them with what they want. Yeah. So, you know, I can see that dynamic now, but I think I was in such an enormous amount of, of pain for a variety of, of different um, reasons. Uh, it, it was when I was eight um, that I was um, groomed by uh, a caretaker at the school. Perfect job for a pedophile, isn't it? Isn't that great? Um, so Tommy sexually molested me, uh, for three years from the age of eight and it was pretty much every day. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't picked up on. However, when I was about probably just almost nine, a teacher did sit me down in, in her way. Um, and boy, I mean, I, you know, God knows where she is, but, but it really, really actually helped me get through the, the sexual abuse. She didn't know that I was being sexually abused, I, I would like to think, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But she sat me down after school one day and, and, and said, you are good at so many things. And there is so much for you to look forward to. Um, and it was, that, it was that sort of just an adult saying, I see your value, I see your worth, even though... I was being sexually molested virtually every day, five days a week for three years. That I could almost sort of use that as an anchor. So when I was being abused, I could remember those, those words. Mm. And, and that was really, really, 
really helpful. So striking how the impact of that based on how you weren't getting that from anywhere else, somebody yeah. just praising you or seeing your value to give you a bit of a purpose or a light or, or, or some kind yeah. of drive forward. And yeah. I, I love this. I got the chills when you said it, just because teachers, parents, caretakers, you know, people don't realize the impact of their words, uh, even yeah. if they never sort of get the full circle, you changed my life, right? Yeah. Um, people yeah. just don't know. And I, I always hold on to that, that people impacted yeah. my life. And that even if I don't get the feedback loop, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I might be the person that says the thing that supports that person moving forward, right? Yeah. Yep. My goodness. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I mean, I would love to see this woman again, even just once to say 41 years later. You remember her. I remember distinctly where we were. Yeah. I remember what she was wearing. Yeah. Goodness. Isn't, isn't, isn't that amazing? Like and locked it in like a freeze frame. You locked it in. So when, when the sexual molestation became overwhelming, which, you know, I can guarantee you five days a week, three years is grueling. And that's going to affect your ability to concentrate, your ability to do well at school, to create friendships, social life, your home life, like everything around you, I imagine. Yeah. Have a ripple effect. Yeah. So I was being bullied um, constantly in school. Right constantly. Uh, kids would chase me home and throw things at me and, and then going into a home that was volatile, shall we say. So there was no real respite. Yeah. Did you have was, siblings? You, you, you didn't say, were there any siblings in your house? Yes. So I um, have a sister okay. uh, who thank God was not affected um, by this particular individual. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think we, we both have have looked at each other over the years and sort of have said, you know, okay, well, we got through it. And that's amazing. Um, my sister is a magnificent human being who, um, who's incredibly strong. She really, I mean, she's, she's got guts and, um, she's, she's been through a lot, but she's also used that to, to, to support other people. She works in a field, which is very much the helping profession. Um, and, and she's a very sensitive person. And I think I'm really proud of both of us because I think you can go one of two ways. Yes. Yeah. And that's what I'm fascinated by. Like, how is it? I, I recently heard that there is actually a, a resilience gene, that some yeah. of us have a resilience gene. I wasn't aware that the, almost the baseline can be different for, for, for different ones of us. Because we, you know, I'm one of five siblings who, who were raised in a religious cult and had all manner of um, sort of crazy um, circumstances, right? Um, yeah. And we've all kind of survived it in different ways. And in yeah. a way, and this sounds pretty crazy, but I feel like I went to the lowest place of all of us. So it got the darkest alcohol addiction, risky behavior yeah. leading me into dangerous situations, like that whole self-destruct yeah. cycle. Yeah. Equally, once I got it and switched things, I was able to use it as a catalyst to get um, to, to perhaps be more successful or to push myself in different ways. And so I'm always fascinated by this, like the level of darkness can equate to like that equal level of light, if that makes sense. That's make, makes yeah. it kind of binary, but um, there's something about a catalyst moment and it can go one of two ways. So we can stay in that addictive, self-destruct, self-harm, whatever behavior. And, and some, of course it can end in suicide. Yeah. Or we can somehow change the meaning or uh, the, the narrative to use your word. Uh, to allow us to to have purpose and and, and give back in some way, um, yeah. So so um, we've only got forty five minutes. I feel like we should we need to talk for a couple of hours because because uh, I'm curious. So so the 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 
sexual molestation uh, stops three years later or this person gets discovered? Um, what happens at that stage and where do you move on from there? Um, well, it was, it was, uh, I was, I had to move schools. It was just the natural time. So we moved, we all, this whole class moved up to the next school. Um, so he, the, the molestation stopped. Um, but you know, one could argue that had I been there for another few years, it would have continued. So I was very lucky in that it just, it was cut off because I'd actually moved, moved schools. Um, and then I, I kind of, you know, I think, in, in, and, and so what, what you've just said about, you know, the addiction and about risky behavior. And I mean, that was literally my life until my 30s. Yeah. So you're literally 30. my life. Yeah. Um, with, you know, alcohol problems off and on over the years and other suicide attempts and hospitalization, self-harming. Um, and, and just this, this incredible just sense of I knew underneath this all that I would rather hurt myself than hurt other people that yes oh. yeah mm -hmm. and and so it was almost I, I don't want to say this was a conscious decision as oh. I was you know sinking my 15th glass of bloody merlot and you know yeah. doing other things that were probably really dangerous for me um but it, and so it wasn't a conscious decision. It was more just knowing. It was a knowing that I don't know how this is going to end. And, and God willing, I will actually get through this. And I will do this every single day just to wake up and keep going, which isn't living. No. But actually that bardo, like what I consider those years of my life, the kind of bardo in the Tibetan book of dead. It's sort of not dead, not alive. And it's essentially survival. And yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone articulate what you just did, which is I'd rather hurt myself than someone else. And I would, ha I completely relate to that knowing, and it would be, it would be a conscious kind of phrase that would be like, you don't understand, I'm protecting you. Yes. Even though yeah. the carnage would then have a ripple effect and affect other people and blah, 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 yeah. blah, but like this weird yeah. kind of counterintuitive, like if I let my actual rage out on the world, like you have no idea, right? Yeah. And so this is safer for everyone. Ooh, man, I mean, that rage, like, as you say, if you unleashed it, you, you are, are you, you literally don't even know what to do with the rage. Be a monster, you're, right? you're, yeah. You haven't by that point, Petra, it'd, it'd be interesting to, see, to, to hear your view, but the processing of that kind of trauma doesn't even begin to occur until you're, you're ready. And so, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, you should have been in therapy at the age of, you know, 20 or whatever. And you kind of think, well, but, but you don't know what you don't know. No. You don't know what you don't know. Like, how, how can you even begin to rationalize an adult sexually abusing you when you're still in your 20s? You're, all you can cope with is just literally saying, I'm in so much pain and I hate myself so much. And I think a lot of people that I've met who have been abused in whatever way, because again, there's no hierarchy, right? I, I think what, what I've always noticed is, is that, you know, and the only way I can articulate this, that, that the damage is actually done when that person subconsciously or consciously says, if a monster like that can do that to me, what does that make me? Uh-huh. If a monster like that can do something like that to me, what does that make me? 
So I think for me, that's in talking to people about trauma, it's that sense of how bad must I be to have been raped or beaten or abused or, you know, emotionally eviscerated or whatever it is that people go through. And, 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 and I think that, that to me was really the key. And, and that's something that I started to go in my thirties. I was like, Oh my God, I am not the monster. Okay. Wait, what does ready look like? Cause I completely take your point. You, you don't know what you don't know. And um, you, you sometimes can't access the support because you just don't have yeah. the information, the education, the, the first steps, like you just don't know. And you yeah. have this pattern or this cycle that becomes habit, right? Self-destructs yeah. habit, right? And yeah. you also see that people almost expect that of you and they reinforce it in a way without realizing it, right? As, as you described as a child. And sure. so for you, how, what, how did you know that you were ready? Like I can definitely uh, kind of map out three major, what I would refer to as rock bottoms that were like, yeah. this is my catalyst moment. Either I yeah. die and just get it the fuck over with, yeah. or I, I figure out how to live. Yeah. That was my fork in the road, right? Um, yes. what, how did you know? What was that um, realization that I need help or I need to talk or I'm ready for something? Yeah. Um, it, it, it was, for me, it was a, a very startling moment in my mid-30s where I literally got down on my hands and knees. I'm not a religious person. Um, you know, I, I believe that there is something out there, who knows, but I'm not a religious person. Um, but, but I found myself on my knees one day after a, a night of what I would consider such self-destructive behavior. I'm actually happy to be here. Uh, I'm lucky to be here. Yeah. And it was uh, an evening which really, I think, changed my life. Um, and I, I literally got down on my knees and, and said, whoever is out there, hear my prayer. I can't continue to live like this, but I don't want to die. And knowing that I didn't want to die was a revelation. So it made me start to, start to think, so if I don't want to die, why don't I want to die? Yeah. What do I want to and live for? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want to die because none of that was my fault. I did not ask or deserve to be abused by the many people in my life to that point who had abused me. And I thought... That thought just dawned on you? It, it, it literally did. It literally did. I think I, I, I'd spent so many years sort of think, thinking, wow, I must be this awful a person. To almost that, deserve this. And I'm work. such a horrific person, and maybe I actually should die to kind of make the world a better place. And, and I think that, that, so what happened that night, um, I had been um, very uh, violently raped by somebody that I'd gone out on a, on a date with. This was the third rape of my life at that point. Um, and, and we do know that, that, you know, people who have been sexually molested as children are at higher risk yeah. for all sorts of different, different reasons. And I thought... I, I just want to highlight, people don't often understand that. Yeah. People often think, well, then maybe the trauma wasn't that bad. 
if you're actually putting yourself in these situations, right? Or may, like their, their logical answer, not having experienced it, is, well, you would just shut down and protect yourself from all sexual encounters, when actually yeah. the opposite is often true, which 100%. is, well, my worth is only connected to toxic sexual or, or destructive spaces, right? Yeah. People just don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they don't. And I think that that's also, that kind of feeds into that whole narrative around, yeah, I'm a bad you person. Know, well, what were you doing yeah. to make somebody rape you? It's your fault. My, my question is actually, what were they doing to actually rape you? But anyway. No matter there what. We, there we go. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Sorry. So I think that, that was my rock bottom. Um, and, and rock bottoms come in all forms. And, and, and I've, I've also said to, somebody said to me recently the other day when we were chatting and she said to, to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering when my husband's going to hit his rock bottom. And I, I looked at her straight in the eye and I said, there is no hierarchy of rock bottom. Yeah. So if you're waiting for him to be arrested, that actually might not be anywhere near his rock bottom. No, that's yeah. your version of what desperation should look like. That's right. And desperation is a really good word for this, Petra, as well, because it, 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 it's like you are literally in so much pain. You're almost like a caged animal. And anybody who comes near you, you're going to lash out at and sort of say, get away from me, get away from me, because you don't want them to even be in, in, in your proximity because the pain from you um, is, is so big that you don't want anybody to actually be harmed by it, which is why that self-imposed isolation is, is such a big thing, I think, for those of us who have survived uh, yeah. Trump. And then isolation just makes the whole thing worse because then we never get to voice, you know, and get some sense check on how yeah. we're thinking or what, how we're perceiving things. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that was my, that was my moment. And then I, I started the, the work and it took me probably another six years to get into regular therapy. Um, is that because it was just a slow process of getting out of total destruct into a healthier survival until actually being open to the possibility? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and it's interesting because many years before when I was 26, so back in 1996, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Okay. And actually, it was, so I spent my entire life being labeled you know, all sorts of different things and, and, and whatever. And so of course I thought, this is great. I've got a new identity, which people will accept more than being a, um, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, which is pretty bizarre when you think about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather have this label that could make sense to myself and other people. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we still somehow wonder how a child got themselves into the position of being sexually molested. I hear this. I do hear this. Well, two years ago, I, I finally met a psychiatrist who, I swear to God, he was just really, really smart and clearly um, trauma-informed. That helps. And he, we had a long chat, and I, he asked me about my life. And, um, and he said, do you think you have bipolar disorder? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, what, what do you think you have? Have, you know, what, what do you think you have? I yeah. said, well, if, we're, if we were looking at kind of what, what actually is causing me some problems is complex PTSD anxiety yeah. and depression. It's a no brainer. Yeah. Went off, went off the meds for bipolar disorder, put on to an appropriate medication. The thrust of the therapy changed slightly and I am in the best place at the age of 49 than I ever have been in my life. Have they, have they rescinded that um, diagnosis? Yeah. 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 Really, I, 
Well, it was a pain in the ass, Petra, because of course I'd done articles and television programs and all for years about, about bipolar disorder. And I had to phone all of my media outlets and say, look, sorry, really, whoops, got that wrong. Um, okay. You know, it was pretty funny. It was like, oh shit, I'm not going to look like I've been running around saying, hi, I've got bipolar disorder. But I just want to highlight that we are the expert on our own experience. Yeah. And that people go to professionals and get told something. And yes, with all the good will in the world, they're seeing you for an hour or a couple of hours to try and help you make sense of things. But yep. you know you. And yep. sometimes we need to say the stuff that isn't being said to actually go, no, this doesn't feel right. I yep. might not be the professional, but it doesn't feel right. And yep. I just see all the time, like the, the, the authority stuff maybe comes up and people just go, okay, yes, sir, you're right, you're right, yep. you're right, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, um, just very briefly because we don't have that much time. I'm curious about that. The, those first, so so rock bottom. You say it takes about six years to like step into therapy. What it were the things amazing. maybe you were practicing, starting to try? Were you starting to talk to people? Like, did you reduce alcohol? Like, what were you doing to just practice being awake and self awareness during those six years? Yeah, um, I I made a conscious effort to get rid of. Um, some very toxic people in my life. Um, I ended up, um, I'm now, now divorced, but, but married a, a really lovely, lovely human being. Um, and, and we're still, we're still friends. And, um, I was very blessed to be with a man who taught me that you don't need to be abused. Wow. Um, and he's a, a, a good soul. He really is, is, is a good soul. So, um, I mean, you know, marriages break up for all sorts of reasons. We turned out to be better friends than, uh, than, than husband and wife, but, um, but I think that, sometimes a, a partner is, is if we, you know, the universe, whatever, we have a partner for an ex, uh, a period of time that allows us to learn or yeah. to feel with, yeah. with the witness. And that yeah. doesn't mean that that's has to be the Disney forever. It's like, I have gratitude for my ex-husband of 13 years were yeah. being a witness and seeing me through my worst yeah. rock bottoms. Yeah. And now we want different things. I'm at a different place and I, you know, great, great gratitude and we can close that chapter or evolve it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really useful to, to not make us wrong again for failing at marriage. Right. hundred. Oh my God. A hundred percent. You know, because that, that sort of whole thing about one's identity becomes about mistake. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I agree with you. And I, th I think the other thing for me really was, was when I started to figure out, because in this Judeo-Christian society and, you know, the whole, the world religions are all about forgive and, and all this thing. And I thought, fuck forgiveness. Yeah. I have no one, I have no one to forgive. Yes. Okay. What I choose to do, and, and this is a, like a daily thing that I do, Petra, is not to forgive and forget. I remember and recover. Wow. Remember and recover. I remember yeah. and recover. Yeah. yeah. My job on this planet, Petra, I, I firmly believe this, is to leave this world a better place than I found it. And every day is, is an opportunity for me to wake up. First thing I always, it's such a practice now. It's like a habit. First thing in my head in the morning before I even get out of bed is to spend a few moments there to say, what am I going to do to make the world a better place today? So you, it gives and, you purpose. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I, if I, if I, 
if I'm going to bear witness to somebody else's pain, I have to be able to do that witness with myself. I have absolutely a huge, huge amount of belief that whatever we go through, the end game is to leave the world a better place than you found it. Not as you found it, not worse off than you found it, but actually better than you found it. Which takes so, commitment, focus, self-awareness. Focus, commitment. So I try and be really good at sleep, um, get some exercise every day. I don't have toxic people in my life. What, what was really interesting is a few years ago after my marriage, I, I got together with um, somebody who turned out to be a, um, a narcissistic uh, sociopath. And um, I, I'm, not, I'm using that term clinically. I'm not using that lightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he was, without a doubt, the single most abusive relationship I've ever had. Was this and, after the healthy relationship or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I, was, I was kind of pissed off at myself because I thought, how did I get myself into that? And my therapist just looked and she said, sometimes when you think you got the lesson, you got to go back and do it again. Ugh, I hate it, but it's true. Yeah. It is so true. Sure. And it's so annoying. And that my moment with, 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 he was really, boy, am I so pleased that he was in my life. I mean, he, he stole tens of thousands of pounds, um, nearly lost my house. I mean, I won't, I won't even go into it, but the verbal abuse the emotional abuse was unbelievable. I, I literally, he, he literally burned me to the ground. And then I had that second point in my life where I thought, okay, Woodside, here we go. All right. So you come through that, you come through that, you come through this. What are you going to do with this? And I'll tell you, my mantra in life, Petra, is my track record of getting through shit is 100%. And I'm going to keep it that way. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he was just a reminder. He was a reminder, actually. He was a reminder. Long-term, <laughs> horrific reminder. Was, yeah, he was just he was an expensive reminder, granted, but a 40,000-pound reminder. But he reminded me, actually, of my intrinsic value. Wait, explain that to people. Because what we've just heard is that he's reminding you of what a bad person you are and, like, emotional verbal abuse, right? And now yeah. you're saying... He reminded me of my intrinsic value. Explain that to yeah. us. Yeah. So I had, clearly there was something going on for me where I thought, oh, let's have another pitch at the post because I haven't yeah. quite learned this lesson, right? So yeah. let's go with somebody who I subconsciously know will be really abusive. Yeah. And when that ended, it was like this knowing in, my, in, in, that, in that moment, it was like just sort of going, actually, you know what? I needed to learn that and I needed to know how bad that abuse was to remind me um, that actually I am the opposite of it. And to practice having a voice in a horrific circumstance, right? Which and you hadn't had a voice for most of your, your adulthood even, but your childhood. Yeah, exactly. So I found my voice and, um, and I continue to find my voice. And I think when we talk about recovery, people sort of think about there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to recovery. And, and the, the, hard, the, the hard thing is, is that recovery also means getting back into old patterns sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then getting out of them much more quickly than you did the first time. Yes. Yeah? Revisits, but the cycle's quicker. It's quicker. Um, and I think every, every day is about recovery. You know, we talk about addiction. Every day is recovery. We talk about trauma. Every day is recovery. And... 
I, I'm, I'm in a place now, Petra, where I may meet other abusers. Okay, I might. Yeah, yeah. But I know that that person that I've just described was the last man with whom I will ever be involved who will behave like that. Drew a line I'm that. done. I, yeah. I, I am now officially done. Took yeah. me a while to get it. Took me a while to get it. But I got it. Which you is know? so exciting and amazing. Which is totally cool. And then talk me through, do you think that your adversity and the challenges, the consistent, relentless challenges that you faced in your life have yeah. made you into the person of character that creates like did you do you did you need are you grateful i don't know it's, it sounds quite extreme um of, of, for the things that have happened in your life in order to be the person that you are now yeah i i would say i'm i'm less grateful um for the things that have happened to me i'm more grateful for whatever little molecule in my body has always stayed there reminding me that Working through the pain is worth it. So that kind of hope, that sense of, you know, I want to say purpose, that might be the wrong, wrong word, but, but I guess hope that, that, that you can move through things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Do, am, am I grateful for the sexual molestation and the bullying and the rape and, and et cetera? Um, no, I wouldn't say I'm grateful for it, but I am grateful that it's tested me um, to the extent where I am I am absolutely not afraid of other people's pain. Right, that, yes. I am not remotely afraid of other people's pain. It doesn't scare me, it doesn't frighten me, it doesn't freak me out. I can stand and witness with that person, beside that person, and feel nothing but privilege. And, and you're grateful for yourself, for your courage, for your bravery, for your ability to learn, your growth mindset, your perseverance. Like, I love that, that reframe, that it isn't like, oh, forgiveness, and I'm grateful for all the shit in my life, you know, but it's going, I'm grateful for me. And that's quite a contrast from like, I hate myself, I hate myself, destroy yeah. myself, right? Oh my you're God. Like, yeah. I've got this. You're a badass, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you know, it's just like the badass thing. It's like, yeah. you know, my track record of getting through shit is a hundred percent. Believe me, a few people have actually tried to take me down. Somebody who's going to take me completely down is, is just absolutely not going to have any luck. I'm the only one who can do that to me and I'm choosing not to. And this is about conscious choice as well. We have to be consciously aware and making choices every second of the day. Nothing happens to us. So the sexual abuse, for example, it, it was a situation I was in, but I wasn't, I, it wasn't because I was such a bad person. It didn't happen to me because I was deserving of it. But what happens to me now is actually my choice. I'm completely in control of walking away from toxicity, of challenging toxicity, and of, of reaching out to people who, who need support. That, that's a conscious daily decision, it's a conscious choice. So I love that it's the, the superpower off the back of this is being able to sit with other people's immense pain, to, yeah. to hold it, create space, to support other people, uh, and yeah. to connect with empathy. That's what I'm hearing, because we can only really truly do that if we've witnessed our own darkness in a way. 
Yes. Um, and then I'm curious about how do we cultivate conscious thought? So you're saying every space is a decision for conscious thought rather than reactive thought. And I know you've done therapy and a whole host of sort of personal development type things. Do you have yeah. habits or practices that kind of support you in, in being who you want to be now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think aside from, you know, so lifestyle is, is obviously really helpful. Um, for me, um, I haven't got the attention span for mindfulness, so it never really worked out for me. Um, I just get distracted and start doing shopping lists and stuff. It's like, so what, what, what I do is again, I, I sort of said earlier, you know, wake up 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, whatever it might be in bed in the morning when I wake up before I get out of bed, consciously say out loud, what am I going to do to world, make the world a better place today? Um, I also like the idea of, of gratitude and I think gratitude is, is enormous. Um, so every day at the end of the day, I'll write five things down that I feel really uh, blessed for. Another thing I like to do, Petra, is to write down instances of synchronicity in the day. Oh, uh, amazing. Which, yeah. is, which is really cool. Yeah, um, when you're consciously awake, right? Yeah. When you're consciously awake, you go, my God, isn't that cool? Yeah, because yeah. That, uh, synchronicity is all about connecting to he other human beings. And every single day, something I always do is stop for a chat with somebody I don't know. I love that. A conscious thing I do every single day, just can be a 20 second chat. Or going up to somebody, the other day, there was a woman trying on a dress at John Lewis and she looked really, oh, I don't really know. And I went up to her and I, I just said, you look fantastic, that's such a great color for you. And we ended up having a little chat about the Christmas party season and all that sort of stuff and I, and I went my merry way. I didn't do it. For her, I actually, in a lot of ways, I did it because of that connection is so important. That's what keeps us here. If you can make somebody smile even once a day, man, you've got this. You got that. it. And it, it supports our mental health. It allows us to uh, develop courage, get out of our comfort zone. Connection yeah. gives us all the serotonin boosts. And, you know, and, yeah. and in our world of technology, it seems like it, we need to make more of a conscious effort to do that because it's like the world yeah. is conspiring to just keep us, you know, addicted to our, our devices and not actually sort of eye contact connection. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so, so, this conversation is so exciting and I know you're in South London too. So I'm like, we've got to hang out. We do have to hang out. This would be fabulous. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. We have to spend more time together. Um, yeah. But for now, where can people find you if they want to connect with, with your work or just with you as a person? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Minding Work Limited, and they can find me on Twitter as well. Lovely. We'll add that into the show notes. And finally, what does the future hold for you? Do you have a sense of like where work, life, love, what's in, what's, uh, in the future for you? Well, this is a big year for me. I'm about to turn 50. Um, and I was given some really good advice. A lot of people are saying, oh, you've got to have a big party. And, and a friend of mine, Sally, a darling, darling friend. And she said, Oh, Andrea, screw it. Screw the day. Make it a year. Ooh. So once a week in my 50th year, I'm going to do something fun, not for my birthday, but just to celebrate that actually 43 years ago was my first suicide attempt. That's a big anniversary. I love it so much. Yeah. And, I, and I love just the, the conscious celebration. Yeah.
Yeah, you got to milk it, right? Milk it. You only turn milk, 50. Milk the hell out of it. Um, and it's so, again, the contrast, it's so opposite from that kind of self-hatred, punishing, self-destruct, you know, to just going, let's celebrate life and the fact that we are alive and that you have a 100% track record uh, on surviving all sorts of shit. Um, I admire yeah. you so much, Andrea. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.